This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 38 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, we meet former Harvard medical professor William Hasseltine, the HIV-AIDS pioneer who has some suggestions on the steps that South Africa should take to handle the pandemic from here. We'll talk coronavirus with the super-achieving WITS professor who's about to become president of the International Actuarial Association, and we'll visit the checkered history of lockdowns, which, in the Western world, only became official policy in 2006. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. First in the COVID-19 headlines today, confirmed global infections of the coronavirus have passed 5.5 million, with mortalities at just under 350,000, or 6% of identified cases. Around 42% of the confirmed cases are now listed as fully recovered. Deaths and new infections in the hardest-hit country, the United States, continue to fall. There is now clear evidence that COVID-19's impact peaked in mid-April with daily new infections and mortalities currently running at half of those levels. Brazil yesterday surpassed the United States as the country with the most coronavirus deaths, 703 against the U.S.'s 617 with Mexico and India next worst at 190 and 156 respectively. The UK, which was the only other country with over 100 daily deaths yesterday, is also well down on its peak of 1,172, which was reached on April the 21st. South Africa's confirmed infections continue to accelerate, with Sunday's 1,240 new cases, the highest yet for a day, although daily deaths at 22 remain relatively modest from a global perspective. South Africa is currently the 18th worst affected country on earth. The U.S. economy, which accounts for around a quarter of global economic activity on earth, is spluttering back into life after COVID-19 virtually shut it down in April and early May. The Wall Street Journal reports that truckloads are growing again, Air travel and hotel bookings are slightly higher. Home loan applications are rising and more people are applying to open new businesses. The number of travelers passing through security checkpoints at airports fell to under 88,000 on the 14th of April. That's down 96% on a year before. But in the United States by May the 22nd, that number had tripled to almost 350,000. Truckstop.com, which measures demand for trucking in America, says its index for available loads was up 22% week-on-week for the seven days to the end of May the 10th. The weekly rolling average for mortgages, down by half in mid-April, was up 27% from that level as at May the 23rd. Japan's state of emergency is set to end as the number of new infections has dwindled, bringing fresh attention 
onto the way that this country ignored rules used widely elsewhere in the world. Japan placed no restrictions on residents' movements, and businesses, including sit-down restaurants and hairdressers, remained open. It deployed no high-tech apps to track movement of citizens, and it tested just 0.2% of its entire population, another approach that goes against conventional practice. Yet, despite breaking all those rules, Japanese deaths have pretty much stopped at 820. Bloomberg reports that how the Japanese have succeeded against COVID-19 has become a national conversation there with reasons ranging from a culture of mask-wearing through to its famously low obesity rate and that speaking Japanese emits fewer drops than when you speak other languages. Scientists, however, say the country's early grassroots response to rising infections was crucial. More than half of Japan's 50,000 public health nurses are also experienced in infection tracing, and in normal times they track down flu and TB. This time round, they track down coronavirus. As Americans celebrate Memorial Day today, the unofficial start of their summer, they've also been streaming back to drive-in movie theatres, which have been in decline since hitting their popularity peak in the 1950s. The number of drive-ins fell in the US from just over 4,000 in 1958 to only 305 today. But with multiplexes closed because of COVID-19 transmission fears, the open-air format is starting to make a comeback, with Americans giving drive-ins a fresh look almost a century after they first appeared in the country. As South Africa moves to stage three of the lockdown, President Cyril Ramaphosa told the nation that the measures his government has taken has delayed the spread of COVID-19, but until there is a vaccine available, the virus will continue to spread in the population. Business spoke to former Harvard medical professor William Hasseltine, who is known for his pioneering work on HIV-AIDS and cancer, about the steps that South Africa could take to deal with the epidemic. And his message was that no country should count on a vaccine. There are other steps that South Africa could take against the virus. Professor Hasseltine, who has founded a dozen biotechnology companies and is the chair and president of Access Health International, also shared an equation for how infectious the world around you is during COVID-19. We don't know if we will ever have a vaccine. And if we do have a vaccine, we don't know how effective it will be. There are good reasons to suspect that if it is effective at all, it won't be completely protective and it may not stop the epidemic. And it certainly will be difficult to vaccinate older people who need it most because older people are very difficult to vaccine, vaccinate for any problem, whether it be flu or anything else. You lose uh, your memory for new antigens, new substances that come into your body just as you lose your other memory, your more famous memory as you age. It's one of the uh, common features of aging anybody over 60 as they diminish the immune response, and the older you get, the worse it is. Sometimes it takes 15 years or more to develop a vaccine that works for older people, like the pneumococcal vaccine works reasonably well in older people, but it took 15 years to get it that way. It's a very tough call. 
What is your advice to South Africa with its high prevalence of HIV-AIDS? Well, what it spells is a focus on public health measures. The good news about this epidemic is we know how to contain it. The Eastern Asian countries that experienced SARS took it very seriously from the very beginning. They knew not only did it have an enormous cost in human lives, but it could destroy an economy. And so from the very beginning, they took it seriously, and they did the three things that every public health official will tells you to do with an epidemic like this. Identify those who are infected, not by a test, but by symptoms. Contact trace. Find out everybody who's been exposed to that person that you can possibly find for the neck for the past uh, 10 days. And then forcibly isolate those people individually in separate facilities for 14 days past exposure. Mandatory isolation. What people talk about is testing. You don't need to test. You isolate everybody who has been exposed. You don't need to test to find out who's sick. Those people who are sick, you isolate. And those people, and you contact trace. So all of that was effective. Today, Beijing has gone more than a month without a single case. Same in Shanghai. It isn't that occasional cases don't pop up here and there, but then you do the same thing. You isolate. So you don't need a vaccine, and you don't need a drug to control it. What you need is good governance, a strong government, and a very efficient public health service. But South African officials might say they don't have the resources that China or the West have to deal with the pandemic. Let me clarify. It's not a problem of money. That's an excuse. South Africa, I've been many, many times in South Africa. I'm on the board of one of your institutions there. It is got plenty of money to do this kind of thing, and it's got plenty of people. It's a matter of organization and governance. And if it's not done, it's the fault of the government, and they should be held to account. Public health officials know what to do, and you can check for fever fighting. And the Chinese didn't even do that. They waited until people came into the hospital. They looked like they were sick. Then they did contact tracing. I'll tell you what happened to a friend of mine early in the epidemic. It was very early February. He flew from Frankfurt to Shanghai. One person on the plane was sick. Everybody on that plane was contacted by the authorities and placed in a single hotel room for 14 days from the time the plane landed. They couldn't leave that room. Their meals were provided by hazmat-clad people. Their rooms were clean with hazmat-clad people. And the, my friend and his wife were isolated in separate rooms. No tests were ever given. You don't need the test. You just shut things down. And that is, and in the long run, it saves the economy. The Chinese economy is opening. People are walking around the streets of Beijing without masks today. So you can say that it sounds draconian, but the alternatives are far worse. That doesn't mean, as a medical researcher, I don't want to find drugs. Of course we want to find drugs. Of course we want to find vaccines. But it's a, a hope that we will, not a reality at this point. And the more I look at the vaccine situation, the dicier it gets. You know, all this premature announcement that we've got a vaccine that works shows that it, most of the vaccines, all of the ones that you've heard about, 
don't stop the infection. They may lessen the impact of the infection. But a vaccine should stop the infection. These don't. So people are scaling back their hopes even for that. And in this particular disease, we don't know what kind of effect. So why count on something to protect a population when you know very well you can do it without it and you can do it at a reasonably low cost? South Africa had a severe lockdown, but that has not really flattened the curve. And how do you deal with densely populated townships where people can't really self-isolate? It's the same advice. Treat every human being equally. Don't discriminate based on economic income. And make a special effort on those areas that are traditionally underserved. The lesson for that comes from Singapore. Singapore is famous for efficient government, for very high-quality knowledge, and for a well-educated population. They didn't treat their underserved minorities as they were human beings. And they don't treat them that way for many other reasons. They don't pay them well. They house them in miserable conditions. They don't allow them to stay there. And they forgot about them. Guess what? The infection popped up, and they had to close their entire country again because they left out a population as if they were human. That's a lesson for any country. Pay most attention to your most underserved populations, those that are in the slums, those that are crowded together in the uh, semi-autonomous regions. Uh, Those are really important things to think about. How well do you think South Africa responded to the pandemic? I think they've taken it much more seriously than many. I had actually, in the days of age, since you bring that up, I had two face-to-face meetings with Mbeki, warning him about his misguided policies. I have to say one thing for him. He listened. He didn't do anything about it, but he did listen. Um, and I think South Africa has learned a painful lesson. That these diseases can not only have a human cost, they can destroy an economy. And they can destroy a country's future. And I think that South Africa more than many other countries, has taken this quite seriously. But that doesn't mean they've taken all the necessary steps. Don't count on a vaccine to save you. Count on yourself to save yourself. And it's not that expensive. There are economists who say, but isolations and lockdowns lead to bigger economic problems and people can't earn a living with lockdown. How do you go about protecting jobs? What you do is what I just said is you contact trace and isolate. You don't necessarily have to isolate everybody. When the virus is established, you have to severely constrain people's contacts. No big group meetings, people wear masks. You have to be very careful about that for the first phase. And during that phase, you have to be very, very rigorous in your contact tracing. And the follow-up, and that's what we don't do in the U.S., you ask yourself, why is a country like the U.S.? the epicenter of the epidemic, the global pandemic. Why are we 5% or 4% of the world population? 30% of all the disease. That's changing slowly as other countries that mess up, like Russia, Belarus, Brazil, are also, but we've messed up terribly. It isn't that we don't have knowledge, it's that we have very poor governments. And what we didn't do is we didn't do, we didn't enforce contact tracing, and mandatory isolation. Even at this stage, when we know everything there is to know about this out of control, we're not doing anything for mandatory isolation for those people who are exposed. 
And so what do we do? In East Asia, they climbed up a peak and right back down the other side. And now they continue with a few sporadic infections. What we did is we climbed up a peak, self-isolated, got to a plateau that's seemingly endless. And what is that doing going to do to our economy? As we begin to have people flood back in in a city, which has a high rate of infection, you're going to just drive it up again. So the level of the plateau will rise. Right now, we're at about 25,000 people a day in, uh, getting sick. Okay? 25,000 people yeah. are getting sick per day in the United States. What are we willing to tolerate? 50,000? 100,000? 200,000? There's some number we won't tolerate. But right now, we seem to be tolerating 25,000 a day. And of that, about 1% to 2% die, maybe a little higher. That's a pretty high rate. We're nearing 100,000 people dead right now and eyeing 200,000 dead. That's not a happy picture, and South Africa will be doing the same if it doesn't follow the same kind of process. Yes, we're hopeful for a vaccine, but hope is not a strategy in real everyday life. Just like the doctors who are treating the patients, they have to work with what they have, not what they hope they will have. And do treatments provide any hope? Uh, we're getting much better as a world at learning how to treat and pre prevent people from dying. We're, for example, learning that if somebody is seriously ill, you've got to treat them with anticoagulants. Because in addition to attacking the lung, the virus is causing the blood to clot. And when there was a recent report, for example, when you look at the autopsies of uh, people who've died of this disease, what people thought was pneumonia turned out to have lungs filled with tiny blood clots. So we can save, instead of a 90% death rate, if you've intubated a patient, you could drop that down maybe to 30% or lower. We're learning how to manage the ventilation a lot better. We're learning to understand what patients should be in the hospital, what aren't. We're understanding that this virus directly attacks the kidneys. So we have to be prepared for dialysis uh, for some patients. We're beginning to understand that there's a very late effect in young people, not just children, young people over 30 and younger, that can show up several weeks after you already look like you're cured. And that uh, you've got to be very careful because that can cause a uh, rapid onset uh, heart failure. And it shows up as a rash. It shows up as a conjunctivitis. There's a whole series it uh, shows up of, and that's that we're learning. And we're sharing that knowledge very widely and quickly. The doctors are learning how to manage it so fatalities are reduced. And that's without any really new drugs, except for the traditional drugs that are on the shelf. There's a group in Hong Kong that's come up with a cocktail that can make a real difference to the survival of people. There are a lot of dodgy announcements, like hydroxychloroquine, or I believe it'll turn out that remdesivir is dodgy. Okay? That top U.S. health field described it as a very modest effect. Think of Tamiflu, but a little weaker. And you probably have it about right for that drug. But the Hong Kong team has come up with a cocktail that if people are hospital with mild to moderate disease, it can save lives. Cocktail of four generic drugs that you don't have to, like remdesivir, use intravenous injection. You can either swallow the pills or have a uh, intramuscular or subcutaneous shot. And we're learning. We're getting better, and over time we will get better. 
But we've already learned the fundamental lesson to control this infection, to save your people and to save your economy. You don't need new drugs. You need an efficient, effective public health service. You have an equation for how infectious the world around you is. Could you share that with us, please? Yeah, the equation is uh, what people want to know is how likely I am to get infected. This is for an inside, when you're in a, a space with other people. Outside, you maybe divide the whole thing by a factor of 10, right? But the probability of getting infected is the time you're in a space with another human being divided by the distance. So the longer the distance, the lower the chance. Times the number of people in a room. So the more people, the more chance somebody's going to be infected. Times the number of people without face masks because that's a higher probability of getting infected. So it's a very simple equation. Look around how many people are in the room. Look around how many are wearing face masks. There's some people in the room and they're no face masks, get out. If there's some people in the room with face masks, you can stay a little bit, but then get out. And the more people in the room, the faster you leave. Those are very simple rules for people. What does it mean for big sporting events in the world in the next phase of the lifting of lockdowns? Very bad for big sporting events, unless you're willing to have them and somebody can figure out the economics. So they work with about one quarter of the people. You have a big outdoor stadium, very sparsely populated with people. You could observe the game. But is that economically feasible? I don't know. You'll have to ask them. I had a conversation with one of the top guys, let's say, think of Ticketmaster. I don't think it was Ticketmaster, but basically that's their business, selling tickets to sporting events, concerts, and they can't make money unless there are 50 or 60,000 people there, right? Yeah. Well, their business is gone and is gone for the foreseeable future. Yeah. That doesn't mean you can't. There's another consideration. It's for the players. You know, a lot of players have been infected, famous players. In every sport, every place around the world, they've been infected. And what happens in team sports, especially contact teams, Think about a rugby scrum or one of those guys is infected. Mm. Would you like to be playing rugby with one of those guys? No. I don't think so. Or look how American football is played. I mean, it is a brutal sport. It's like 25, no, maybe 100 wrestling matches at once. <laughs> without, you know, it's really what it's like. Those guys are really, they're not just, you know, bouncing off each other. They're looking sometimes. It's a very, right, it's like... Uh, like uh, individual scrums going on all the time. It's a tough sport. Basketball. Look at basketball. Just look at the sweat that pours off these athletes and the way they have to breathe. My goodness. Whether it's <laughs> basketball, like, or maybe, you know, the, the more genteel sports like baseball and uh, cricket are kind of different. There's not a lot of contact there. Yeah. Uh, but as people huddled in the, in the team shelters, you got to figure out what to do for that. So even... Even those are, are complicated. Play without without fans. Maybe ping pong. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, no spectators though. What does the future look like? I mean, are we going to sit with coronavirus, the novel coronavirus, COVID nineteen, for some time in the future? Well, you know, I think at this point the bet are yes. And the reason for that is humans have a history with coronavirus. It's probably been with us. They've been with us for a very long time. We only knew about it from the 60s. 
But right now, we know that there have been four coronaviruses, a couple from bats and uh, from cows and other species. That coronaviruses are in many mammals, including really odd mammals. And they come into the human population at some point. And once they establish themselves, they have a very peculiar habit. Now, everybody understands the flu comes back seasonally. It's a little different from the time before. So your immune system that's seen at one time doesn't see the new one. So it, it's like change, it's like putting on a mustache and a, uh, and a beard. It comes in in a different disguise so you don't recognize it. Well, these viruses are different. They knock you down, give you a cold, and they come back looking exactly the same and give you another cold. And the next year they do it again. And the next year they do it again. And they've been doing it, same four characters, as long as we've watched them for the past 50 years. This kind of virus doesn't need to change. It has a bunch of tricks to fool your immune system, so it's, it's never seen it before. And some of those tricks are very difficult for vaccines. That's why I'm more skeptical about a vaccine. I don't think, it, I, I'm not going to say it won't happen, but it's going to be tough because one of its tricks is it infects you, your immune system recognizes, gets rid of it, and then forgets about it. So this virus has ways of making your immune system forget. Second thing is, it often comes in through the nose. And the, the nasal root is one of the hardest, most difficult problems in vaccinology. It hasn't ever been solved, actually. How you protect somebody from a virus that comes in through your nose. And people are trying, but they haven't cracked the problem. Problem number two. Problem number three is the people who need it the most are older people, and they are the weakest. And not only are they the weakest, they react to the virus most violently. Because when your immune system gets weak as you get older, one part of it, another part gets stronger to help you protect you. That's called natural innate immunity. Well, what does that do? When a virus comes in, it says, we can't remember what we've seen, but we're going to be more active than normal to get rid of this thing. And that's what kills a lot of people. It's an overactive immune system. So there are a lot of difficulties with this. So the short answer to your question, it's going to be around maybe for decades, maybe for centuries. So we have to learn to live with it and cope with it. Exactly. And control it through public health measures. And hopefully, I'm also very hopeful, more hopeful that we're going to have effective drugs. We'll have drugs that knock out this virus. We'll have drugs that provide immunity. These are drugs, not vaccines, for a period of time, say up to four months per shot, for our healthcare workers. Uh, we are going to have them. I'm almost certain. And we'll all have a drug, a pill that you can take the moment you think you're getting sick that can stop it cold. And some of those same pills may again be used by healthcare workers. So we will adapt. We are a clever species. We'll adapt. This virus has cracked our code. It's time for us to crack its code. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Roseanne Harris joins us now. She's the Professor of Actuarial Science at WITS and Head of Regulatory and Policy Affairs at Discovery Health. Roseanne, that's not all. You have also been nominated to become the President of the International Actuarial Association. And from what I read, 60,000 actuaries around the world, 106 bodies. Are there many nominees? No, I am the um, I am the only nominee. Thanks, Alec. Um, and I guess it will be confirmed come November. But at this stage, at the first 
virtual council meeting of the IAA that took place a week or so ago, then I was announced as being the only nominee for that role. What would it entail? So the IAA, as you said, it's an association of associations. So what it is, is the global body for actuarial societies around the world to meet and essentially compare notes, but also ensure that there's some global consistency in terms of actuarial professions and the way in which the global profession operates. So essentially, the role would entail heading up that association of associations over a period of three years. You spend one year as president-elect and then one year as president and then one year as past president. So the nice thing is that there's a fairly diverse team heading the association at any particular time, so three officers, and generally coming from various parts of the globe. So I feel quite excited about the opportunity to bring the South African perspective to that leadership role, but also to be working with other actuaries from other diverse backgrounds, different economies, different social protection mechanisms in place, different perspectives on how we manage risk in the financial services industry across the globe. Interesting also looking at your background, that apart from graduating at WITS and being the professor there of actuarial science, you've also taken a very close interest in healthcare. Where did that all start? When I graduated from WITS a while ago, the area of healthcare was not a usual place for actuaries to be working. And I had the opportunity as an actuarial student at that stage to take up a role in that area of practice and to essentially establish it as an area of practice. At that stage, there weren't many actuaries working in healthcare, and we had the opportunity to bring the actuarial skill set to this area, which it was appropriate to be applying some of these techniques that have been developed over many years in areas like life insurance and general insurance and to apply them to the area of managing health risk. And so over the period of my career, health is now very much an established area of actuarial practice and established in the actuarial curriculum. We have fellowship subject um, that actuaries qualifying as nowadays can take health as a particular discipline and specialization. So it was really interesting and exciting having that opportunity to be part of that whole development. And of course, I got the opportunity to work with some fairly illustrious actuaries, particularly people like Barry Schwartzberg at the time in terms of also establishing that area of practice. Actuarial science has really come to the fore, as is all sciences, I guess, through the COVID-19 crisis, because people are looking for facts rather than opinions. But it does confuse the rest of us when even the actuaries seem to be not able to talk on the same page. What do you make of diverse views that we're seeing from actuaries? It's an interesting question because it begs the question about what the role of actuarial modelling is. I mean, I remember the Institute of Actuaries always in the UK, they always had the motto of actuaries making financial sense of the future. And I guess one has to ask oneself the question, like, what is the role of actuarial modeling? And I like to think of it as a way of sort of understanding risk. I mean, what we have at the moment is we are being bombarded daily with new facts and information and actually very difficult to discern the facts from the sort of suppositions. And we need a mechanism to try and make sense of what all this information means. And I guess that's a very important role that actuarial modeling can play, is providing a framework to bring together information and and making sure it's dynamic enough 
that as that information unfolds and evolves, we can start making sense of what it means um, and understanding the, the forward projections, understanding even what's in front of us right now. The challenge, of course, is that one has to be quite balanced and rigorous. One has to not be looking to perhaps perpetuate a particular point of view or get too hung up on perhaps a, a projection that you made in the past. If you think of how things have changed just in the space of the last 30 days, some of the questions that we were looking at in terms of what, where is the resilience to the virus? What are the factors that seem to be contributing to the spread? Even that information has changed quite dramatically over the space of just a short period of time. And so we need to be quite disciplined in terms of our approach of how we filter that information and how we take it into account in something like a model. So I think the, the point about actuarial modeling is that it's a scenario planning tool. It's as good as the information that you're putting in and the scenarios that you are setting. But the value of the tool is understanding the risk, understanding the range of possibilities, understanding the opportunities to intervene and take actions. And provided that we are taking that disciplined and scientific approach of how we interpret information, then we are going to get useful results. But we do need to stick with that sort of professional integrity of how we use the information at hand. Are we doing that in this country as far as the official policy is concerned, as far as the direction that the government is taking? Is it based on actuarial probabilities? I don't have insight in terms of the, the way in which the decision-making is taking place at, at the command council as much as, as what's in the public domain. But it certainly seems to me that there's a lot of rigor being applied and a lot of reference to scientific input. The range of possibilities here is quite wide, and I guess that's what causes the uncertainty and the alarm when we see the range of outcomes. But I certainly do get the impression that we are taking a fairly scientific and, and rigorous approach to how that information is being interpreted and where it conflicts, that obviously then there's tough decisions that, that have to be made. That's a challenge with any kind of modeling or decision-making tool. It doesn't necessarily make the decision for you, but it should be providing the adequate support to make informed decisions. And I think the important thing is always to have an open mind to the information as it evolves so that as new information comes to light, you interpret it and make the required decisions without sort of being too wedded to perhaps a previous point of view, which might have been well informed at the time. But as the information evolves, we need to evolve our way of thinking as well. That sounds difficult, particularly when you're dealing with politicians who are not known for the humility. And it sounds like you need to be humble to change your mind as the facts emerge. Absolutely. I often think that um, humility and integrity are quite closely linked. There's a danger if you don't exercise humility, then you start to threaten acting with integrity. And I must say, when I watched our president speaking last night, I felt that there was a huge respect expressed for the scientific community and the input they can provide. But ultimately, someone has to make those tough decisions. And obviously, hindsight as always, is 2020 vision and decisions should be evaluated based on the information that was available at the time and the discipline that was put in place in terms of how that decision was taken. Do you think that science is going to get a higher role in society after this pandemic, this crisis that we've been through? It's almost like we're now looking more to understanding the world around us through facts rather than the stories we've been told. 
I think it's been a very interesting time in terms of looking at what people have relied on in terms of when they're faced with all of this uncertainty and really alarming information that they're being bombarded with. Where do they turn for that assurance that someone knows what's going on and someone is going to steer us through this? And I think it is interesting that certainly the prominence that has been given to the advisory committee and to various scientists is, in a way, it is quite reassuring. I guess the difficulty is that that obviously comes head to head with the social media and when stories are you know, spread like wildfire as people's ability to do that fact checking and make sure that they're not being led astray by information that has perhaps been manipulated. So it does raise all sorts of issues around how we validate information. I mean, it's just so interesting if, if I put my academic hat on how, you know, when you think about how long it normally takes to publish research, to publish a paper. And I mean, the references that we see being included in the information that's being released by the NACD and so forth are things that have been put together literally in the space of the last couple of weeks. I mean, it's almost unheard of to see literature evolving like that. And of course, it's good that this information is being widely available, but it's also dangerous from the point of view that um, the necessary rigor of, of making sure that appropriate methodologies have been followed, that checks and balances are in place, that the evidence is substantial enough to draw the conclusions that have been drawn, you know, that obviously some of those things may well have been compromised in the rush to share the information. So I think that reliance on scientific rigor, as you say, is something that is evolving, but we're going to have to find a way to strike the balance between getting information out there so that others can work with it and build on it, but also making sure that it's been appropriately reviewed and, and validated. Perhaps you can just give us some advice for those who want to be rational, who don't want to get caught up in the drama and would like to find ways of perhaps balancing their perspectives. What would you suggest? I think it's important when you're looking at, at these various uh, studies as they've evolved to, you know, to obviously interrogate that evidence quite carefully to see where it's come from. I mean, has it been on the basis of a proper study? I mean, at the moment, looking at studies where the numbers are quite small and, and drawing conclusions and extrapolating those quite while is dangerous. So, so look at the sources, look at who's involved and perhaps rely on, on some of the more mainstream, particularly where there's an academic link of resources to ensure that at least some validation has taken place. I think we're quite fortunate there's a plethora of information out there and our own official SA coronavirus website is actually very useful in terms of a lot of valuable information that at least has been vetted to some extent about getting local information. But perhaps relying on those kind of websites rather than WhatsApp groups is probably a good rule of thumb. I think it's also quite exciting that there's a, a huge amount of collaboration that's taking place globally as well, and that the links between universities, between resources, the people who are involved in managing public health in various countries, you know, officials, all collaborate and sharing information. It's a very positive thing. But I think we do, we obviously need to keep an eye on the discipline that's involved in doing that. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. After an initial period where most citizens and politicians agree on lockdowns, there appears to be more and more people that think lockdowns are damaging to the economy and to people's livelihoods. The question is also being asked what happens if there is a serious spike in COVID-19 cases. Will any government be allowed by the citizens to reintroduce a 
a severe lockdown without civil disobedience. These are the issues that Bloomberg host Lisa Bromovich and Paul Sweeney discussed with one of their opinion writers, Joe Nacera. He looks at the history of lockdowns. They never became policy, pandemic policy, until 2006, when George Bush asked the government to come up with a pandemic plan. And the, and the scientists who came up with the lockdown idea, they were not infectious disease scientists. And there was a lot of controversy around it at the time. There have been pandemics in 1957. There was one in 1968. Of course, the famous one in 1918. Absolutely, a lot of people stayed inside because they were terrified. But there was never a an official lockdown. So, so the answer is... There's no previous science to know what good the lockdown does. And although it makes a lot of intuitive sense that you would stay inside and therefore avoid the virus, there's a lot of downsides, as we're about to find out when the economy starts to open. We are seeing a pretty strong correlation. And I know correlation is not causation, but it is becoming scientifically accepted that the economies that shut down more aggressively and more quickly were those that managed to stave off some of the worst effects of this uh, virus that we've seen in places like New York and Milan. So from that perspective, how can you dismiss that as showing the efficacy of this type of shutdown? I don't dismiss it, but, you know, there's also there's mass, there's social distancing. There's the fact that 80 percent, literally 80 percent of the people who have died in this pandemic have been the elderly, you know, whether you're inside or outside. And then you have states like Texas and Florida, which have been very lax on lockdowns and, and their numbers of, of deaths are extremely low. So, I mean, I would argue that, you know, it's really unclear as to whether the lockdown is saving a lot of lives or not. All right, wait, hold up a second, right there. Where are you staying right now? I'm in Southampton. Okay, so you're not in the city, right? Correct. Okay, and my question is, let's say there were no state-mandated lockdowns of any sort. Would you feel comfortable going about your business the way that you had in the past and going on the subway? I don't know. That's a good question. I think if I had a mask and gloves, I would. And I also think that I would probably have to. I'm also 68 years old, so I'm in the high-risk group. There's no question I came out to the Hamptons because I was scared. But, you know, you watch. You watch data. You watch things happening. You watch what's going to happen to the economy, and you think to yourself, you know, is this really the right way to continue to proceed? And one distinction that I've been making is between the hotspot states and cities like Detroit and New York and New Orleans and places like Houston and Miami and San Diego, which have very, very, very few deaths. I also think this is such a politically fraught issue. And the question is, if autonomy... it is. OK, I want to talk about that. That is so right. This is the big problem here. Here's the big problem. It has become a political issue. And it's, and, and, and it's like if my political party believes in lockdowns, then I believe in lockdowns. If my political party says lockdowns are BS, then I say that it's BS. Nobody on either side is willing to just sit down and say, let's look at this with fresh eyes. Let's think about this uh, from, a, from a point of view of neutrality and science. It's not happening. Everybody on both sides says, you know, I'm following the science. I'm following the science. Well, what does that even mean <laughs> with a lockdown where, where, where there is, where the science is unclear? You know, the conversation, Joe, is just, you know, the cost of the economic cost of the lockdown versus the, the cost in lives. And that's kind of what the reopening debate seems to be evolving to. I think that's absolutely true. Let me ask you this. 
this is kind of how I ended my column yesterday. You know, it's quite likely that the virus will will fade in the summertime uh, because that's often what happens. And then it'll probably come back with a vengeance in October. And if that happens and we're reopening the economy, are you going to say, well, let's shut everything down again for three months because yeah, it's back? I, I don't know. That's going to be I, a really tough. I yeah. don't think – I don't think anybody's going to agree to that. I just yeah. don't think the society is going to agree to that. And I think we're going to have to learn to live with this thing with measures like masks and social distancing yep. <laughs> that are less severe than a lockdown. We yeah. could wind up in a depression. What a fascinating program that's been. This has been episode 38 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.